Rethink Retail, the evolution of retail in today's connected world. Welcome to the Rethink Retail Show, your source for the most recent trends and innovations in commerce. Join host Julia Raymond, Global Director of Research at Valtech, a global digital agency focused on strategy and transformation in retail, as she explores the most recent trends and innovations in commerce. This episode of Rethink Retail, sponsored by Valtech, where experiences are engineered. Hi, welcome to the Rethink Retail Show. Today, my guest is Paula Rosenblum. She's the co-founder and managing partner at RSR Research. With over three decades of industry experience, she's widely recognized as a leading tech analyst and IT practitioner. Before co-founding RSR, she held executive positions in retail tech and was CIO for several companies on the U.S. East Coast. She's also a Forbes contributing writer. Paula, will you kick off our discussion today by telling us a bit more about what you do? Sure. RSR is, is pretty much a technology research firm. We're different from the Gartners and Foresters of the world in that we don't look at, we don't compare vendor against vendor. What we really do is look at the market and we try to understand the business context within which retailers make their technology choices and which ones are more successful and how they, how, and, you know, how they use technology to support that success. It's kind of cool, actually, because what you find is that Winning at retail is an outcome. It's not, it's not just a, an accident. It's very rare that you get a unique product and it's like, oh, it's a must have and that'll drive a whole business. Pretty much it's, there's right. a set of thought processes and, and strategies that make it work. Makes total sense. And that was a good um, recap of, of what RSR's core business offers. So with that, I'll just jump into the questions. Earlier this year, you wrote a Forbes article about the the new chief merchant being named at Macy's and how she had a big job ahead of her. And you said one of Ongman's tasks is to reinvigorate Macy's private label products. And I wanted to bring this up just because Macy's is going through a lot right now. They're a huge retailer, you know, almost $30 billion in revenue. And so why do you think it's so important for Macy's to focus attention on private label right now? Because in today's age, it's entirely too easy for the brand managers to disintermediate the retailers. And department stores in and of themselves aren't, um, aren't the most shoppable in the world. So what you want to do is highlight your private label product so you can grab more gross margin on it. And if you do it well, it gives the customer a reason to go to the store as opposed to just buying, let's say, from, just as an example, Ralph Lauren online or or uh, Tommy Hilfiger online or Michael Kors online. So if it's private label and it's ink or style company, style and company and some of their other private labels, the only place you can get it is Macy's and that drives you to the stores and the websites. That makes sense. And is there a lot of challenges to creating, you know, entirely brand new private labels or were you talking about just reinvigorating the current ones? Either way, I mean, I mean, the question is how many people know that what ink is anymore and how many people know what style and company is anymore. I would say either one would work as long as they reinvigorate those brands as brands. That makes sense. Totally. And kind of moving on from that question, but to a similar one in regards to Macy's. Recently, a Bloomberg contributor said that they worry it's backstage concept, the off-price area within the Macy's store won't ever be powerful enough to bring in new generation of shoppers to Macy's tent. And um, they were worried that their growth 150 plan, which brings remodels to, you know, the top performing stores, creates a bit of a confusing brand identity for them. 
And I was just kind of wondering what's your reaction to these doubts? Well, the first one is the backstage concept, and I agree with them 100%. You can't take a moderate-priced department store and then say, here's a lower-priced alternative. I mean, I mean, Macy's is already a, basically a, a, a moderate-priced department store, and they're always running promotions. So why would you buy a, a lesser version of something that's already kind of lesser? It makes much more sense for a company like Nordstrom to do the rack or, or Saks to do or off fifth because you've got a pretty much higher end product and you're servicing it for the aspirational customer with a lower end product. Macy's frankly just isn't that high end to start with. So I've always scratched my head about the backstage concept. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. In terms of the Growth 150 plan, which will bring Remodels only to its top performing store, I don't think it creates a confusing brand identity. I think they're just acknowledging the obvious. Um, Macy's probably has too many stores. Um, it was kind of a miracle that Mr. Lundgren kept them going as long as he did, because once they did the consolidation with uh, May Company, it became crazy. And so I, I think that it makes sense to feed your best stores and not starve the other ones, but slowly bring them along. Uh, I think it makes sense if you, it, you know, capital is, is a fairly scarce commodity. And so you want to use it wisely. Yeah, I would, I would probably agree. And that's, that's a good insight. Um, but you said that you might foresee them closing stores in the near future, additional stores. Um, is there anything else from your perspective that, that they should be really concerned about right now? Or is there anywhere tariffs. you think they should be investing? Tariffs, 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 and tariffs. Um, and, mm -hmm. and I have to say, I was looking at um, some other results this morning from another company, and I don't understand why the apparel sector is doing so bad overall. And it is. It's not, I understand, you know, each, each company has its own story. Um, and I understand that each one has its own challenges. But you can't deny that A, department stores are having trouble, and then B, the whole apparel sector is having trouble. And while it's convenient to say, well, it was a wet spring, so people didn't go shopping, I'm kind of a little unconvinced. And I don't think I have my arms around why. Because if it was the fear of tariffs, they'd be buying more now in anticipation of prices going up, which is actually what the right. retailers are doing. So I'm, I'm sort of at a loss. Maybe the market is just way oversaturated. That's the only thing I can figure. If it is oversaturated, do you see any like big consolidation happening? Or would that be a slower burn? A slower burn. I, don't, I think we're already over-consolidated, to tell you the truth. Um, that's one of the, again, that's one of Macy's challenges, is that you've got all these former banners. Uh, somebody made a decision to call them all Macy's, right, wrong, or indifferent. And now you have a gazillion, and I don't know what the exact number is. A gazillion is a technical term. Uh, you, have a, you have a gazillion <laughs> stores, right? And, and um, it's too many. You know, now, if it, if, would it be better if there was a Burdines and there was a, um, a um, Marshall Fields? Maybe, you know. But there's just been too much. I think there's been too much consolidation. There's not enough exciting going on in, in, in the department store area. Um, I think Macy's has some opportunities with the story concept, but um, yeah, there, there are big issues and tariffs aren't gonna make it better. Well, it's interesting that you bring up the story concept because um, and the fact that we're talking about how Macy's is more of a middle of the line department store, like Neiman Marcus, they just opened one of their flagships 
a, a new flagship uh, in New York. And they have, you know, a full kitchen on one of the floors to do product demonstrations. And then they have an area that holds 100 people for speaking events for different designers to come in and, and showcase, you know, their new line. So do you think those types of luxury, more high-end experiences are something Macy's that would make sense for Macy's considering its brand? Macy's has been doing cooking demos forever. I actually was in a Macy's store buying luggage and, and um, I don't think it was Martha Stewart, but it was somebody relatively well-known was in there doing a cooking demo. What does make sense is trying to turn retail, not exactly into theater, because push comes to shove with the object of the game is still to sell things, but to create a differentiated experience that draws customers in, something that makes it interesting. Cooking demos and things like that tend to build community. They may not lead directly to sales, but they bring people together with who are like-minded. It creates a social environment and it's, it's kind of a really healthy thing. Neiman has a challenge in that such a high percentage of his product is fulfilled online. I think they'd like to bring people to their stores a little more. So creating store as theater and store as interesting will help them quite a bit. That makes sense. And you said that creates community, but that makes me think about like the, we saw a lot of buzz about the H&M interactive mirror at their flagship store, uh, which has, I think, an an 85% selfie download rate. So the people seem to like it, but I wonder, is that, is that more just of a, a tourist attraction in a sense? Are those things helpful that don't really communicate a ton about the brand, but they're, you know, fun to Well, tourist attractions is an interesting subject because I live in Miami and we have a boatload of malls. I mean, with all the talk about malls closing down, we just keep opening more. And it's partly (laughs) because we are a tourist destination. and, And I have to go to Orlando periodically for business purposes. And I find there's a lot of off price malls there. So in a tourist area, the question always comes up, okay, it's great, you're here to go to the beach, what do you do on a rainy day? Or what do you do when you've burned yourself to a crisp? And so malls become really useful sources of entertainment in that regard. And the Neiman's is in Hudson Yards, right? If I remember correctly? Yes. Yeah, and that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of a tourist destination. So it makes sense to pull them in and hopefully they buy something while they're there. Great. Well, I think, you know, we covered a bit about Macy's. I really enjoyed your insights there. And I, I just want to completely kind of jump to a different subject, mostly because I saw an article you wrote a few weeks ago, and you said, consumer privacy is emerging as the story of the year. And just from your you know, broad perspective, why is, why is this the case? Well, it doesn't help that more and more information comes out about the way Russia managed the election and what Facebook is doing with the consumer data that it gathers. And there was a a theory around the industry for a long time that, oh, millennials don't care about privacy. It's only you old folks that care about privacy. Millennials are used to being watched. They they publish everything in selfies and on Instagram and they don't care. It turns out they really do. And the more these these stories come out of, of companies and entities misusing data, the more firm consumers get around saying, you can't have it unless I agree to give it to you. And what are you going to give me in exchange, by the way? You don't get to have that. You know, so it's all about removing the anonymity of information about somebody and exposing them in ways they would prefer not to be exposed. I don't like it. And, and the other part is that 
to be honest, and this is my industry, so I say it out of kindness, we haven't demonstrated as an industry we do a very good job of protecting that data either. As, as retailers. Yeah, yeah. And why do you think that, um, because that was a mass notion for a while, that millennials, the new generations, they don't care. What do you think drove that? I mean, because I, I, know, <laughs> I know that the media is now driving the concern and kind of whistleblowing. It was, the, it was but... the media. It was the media, and it was, um, I think, to some degree, venture capitalists who were investing in companies that would uh, get, use this data, and so it was in their best interest to say millennials don't care. Uh, I think we've attributed things generationally that really had to do with age more than it did with a generation, if that makes sense. It's sort of like saying, well, millennial, millennials don't want to vote. Truth be told, I didn't vote till I was 30. It's kind of common um, in, 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 the way, in, in the way that younger people tend to think. They're much more cavalier. And as they start getting into ages where they have something to lose, they change their attitudes. So I think that there was a lot of noise out in the, in the media saying, oh, no, they, they don't care. Everybody knows they're being filmed. Um, and I, honestly, if you look back at the things I've said over the past 15 years, I've always said, you're wrong. They do care. And anytime we ran a consumer study, we found that they did care. So uh, I just think it was noise. Honestly, I do. Wishful thinking, I guess. Great. <laughs> well, what do you think about like the extent that retailers should be communicating the the tactics that they're using because i know back to the Macy's examples that they you know they have the rfid tags and that are sewn into a lot of their more expensive clothing items which the retailer can decide when those rfid tags stop tracking so if the person buys a shirt and then wears it back into the store it could still be tracking them in the store when they come back yeah, I don't think they've got the coverage to do that. You know, um, that's something I think that's also a little bit of an urban legend. The most that, that retailers are hoping at the moment to do with this RFID data is to try and find product that they can't otherwise find. So I've seen examples um, of Macy's in particular, actually, where they'll have an associate walk around with a hand scanner looking for a particular size jeans or a particular dress that they can't otherwise find because it could be in the dressing room, it could have been moved to another shelf nearby. So it's really a convenient way for them to um, find product. But I, I haven't heard of any situation where they have enough money to put enough sensors in the store so that they can track you walking around in it based on your blouse. I just don't see that. I really Do you don't. think that could be something concerning in the future or with that with visual mm -hmm. tracking? Um, not, not, not with RFID. There's other ways to do it that are, that are um, sneakier and, and, and work better and don't cost them as much money. Um, you know, mm -hmm. Wi-Fi tracking is, is, is one way to do it. Another way is, believe it or not, you can use LED lights and somehow bounce it off of cell phones and track, and track the customer oh. that way. I've talked to a couple companies who do that. Now, what's cool is they anonymize the data. And I don't think anyone cares about uh, any consumers care that as a set or as, a, as, a, as an anonymous being, they are moving from place to place. What they care about is when it's associated with their name. And if it's more for operational you know, optimization. 
Sure. In, in I mean, store. if you think about it, um, you, you want to know what the, like, let's take location data. You want to know what the traffic pattern is to get who's coming to your store and where are they coming from and what's the route they're taking. And then once you understand who they are and where they're coming from, you can better tailor an assortment to their needs because you know about the people who live in that general area. So that's really useful and handy and it informs what you decide you're going to sell in the store. Um, but doing it by name is just, it just goes right over the line into creepy. Right. And you brought up a good point, location data, because that's something also is going to touch on. There's a recent stat that half of retailers partner with third-party firms to collect consumer location data. Some industry sources think that it'll reach, you know, to a 15 to 20 billion industry by 2023. There's obvious pros to the location data and leveraging that, but are there any cons? I can't think of any, quite honestly, as long as, as long as it's anonymized data, then it's great. We, we work with a, you know, in full disclosure, I have a client who does that location tracking on a macro level. In other words, they don't track you within the store. They're tracking your, your traffic patterns and things like that. And that's been around in retail forever because that's how you kind of decide where to put a store in the first place. It's just gotten right. more intelligent, right. which helps you then decide where to put distribution centers, um, how do you want to localize the assortment? What kind of promotions do you want to run? Um, if it turns out people are coming in from the suburbs into your downtown store, you may want to focus on high school colors that you wouldn't ordinarily focus on. Let's say you're a, you know, example I always use because I was in the industry as a party supply industry. Um, very unusual color paper plates get sold in the fall during football season. And that's based on the school colors that are nearby. And so the question becomes, what, what is the closest high school to the place where my customers are coming from so I can stock those colors? That's a real basic example. Yeah, that's a good example, too. And it, it makes me think, you know, also of just digital signage, because that's how a lot of the vendors, um, you know, do their demos. You know, you can change all the screens to reflect, you know, the local flair or the season or, you know, things that really tailor it to the location. Yes. Yeah, and there's no doubt digital, I'm going through some data on the store at the moment um, from our annual benchmark, um, and we're finding that digital signage is getting more and more popular. Yeah, and do you think, I mean, that's a good amount of investment, so is that something you see that they'll test in top performing stores first and then roll out, or only use them in certain stores, or what's like a strategy for that? Well, the challenge with technology in stores is always an issue. So the first thing you do is you run some kind of a pilot test to see if it, if it changes anything. Um, and if it does, and you, you start with a small project that pays for itself, and then you roll it out to more and more stores. The object of the game is to continue getting return on investment. If you don't get a return on the investment, there's no point in doing it. If you can change, listen, an A store is never going to really become an A plus store. So the, the name of the game in retail, particularly when you're dealing with stores, is to turn the D stores into C stores and the C stores into B stores and the B stores into A store, because you're not going to move an A store to an A plus store. So, you know, your best bet is actually probably ironically to put it in a B store and turn a B into an A. Oh, I wouldn't think of it like that, but that's, that makes a lot of sense. Well, that's how, when, when I was, I was a CIO for a long time, as, as, as you mentioned, and that was the way we looked at it. We, we rarely looked at turning an A into an A plus. 
Uh, we looked at maintaining its ACE status, but we also looked where the money really was, was moving the, the, the mediocre stores into a less mediocre situation. Absolutely. And so moving into a, a different question, you, you'd said before that on the topic of consumer privacy, circling back around, on one hand, data security and privacy is an IT issue. And on the other hand, it can be a serious brand issue. How do you see senior retailers tackling both issues? Well, the first thing is to take it seriously, um, to understand that data security and privacy is a big deal. And that has to come from the top. That absolutely has to come from the top and it has to be pushed down to the organization that says data security and privacy is a really big deal to us. We must have a chief information security officer. We have to do that. You know, and that's how you tackle it. As a brand issue, if you have a breach, I mean, and this is going back a number of years, don't do it the way Target did it during their breach in 2013. Right. You know, yeah. Home Depot did a very good job just saying, yeah, we did it, it happened, we're sorry, and that was the end of that, you know. It, it, the object is not to overreact, but to acknowledge that it happened. That makes sense. And is it is it like a chicken and egg situation, or do you see data secure and privacy kind of in tandem impacting IT and brand? In tandem. I'm, I, I mean, at, so far, again, with that one data breach, breach exception, there has been very little impact on retailers when it came to data breaches. Sooner or later, it's, I, I'm going to talk more about privacy than I am about data security. It seems that consumers are more forgiving around, around the fact that they got breached than they are around the fact that their privacy was impinged upon. And so it's two different issues, right? Data security is something, it's an imperative. It has to come from the top down. And privacy is a decision that, that the retail executives have to come to themselves that says, just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. And people really do care about privacy. And maybe if you have permission-based privacy um, breaches, it's not the right word, but it's close enough. If you have permission-based information, it's very different than just, you know, reading a six-page long document about what we're, what we're willing and not willing to do with your data. I was actually shocked. I got a, an email from Nordstrom, which is a company I really quite admire generally, with their, quote, new privacy policy. And, when I, and I decided to read it. It was very sobering because they were saying we can track you in the store. We, I mean, the number of things they were, they were saying they reserve the right to do was a real turnoff for me. And do you think that's just because they're trying to be, you know, so competitive? Yeah, they're trying to sell more stuff. They're trying to understand your walk patterns so they can help design the store better. I get what they want to do. Uh, they want to they market to you directly. You know, they, they want to offer you personalized information and promotions, and that's all very noble and good. But it's not noble and good if it's not straight up permission-based, you know, simple permission-based, like we will track your, you walk in the store and there's a sign that says, we will track your Wi-Fi unless you tell us not to, or unless you turn it off. That's real simple. I don't need to see a 12 page story. So you're, but you're not saying necessarily multiple opt-ins. You're just saying to not make it like, I don't know if it's a great example, but you know, the, the South Park episode about the iTunes agreement and how they used to be tens of pages long. So instead of sending out that to consumers, thinking they'll just, you know, accept kind of making it more visible Absolutely. Um, and concise. 
Absolutely. When I walk into a store, if you're tracking me, I want you to tell me. Because if you don't tell me and I find out later that you did, I won't go back in your store again. Or I'll turn off my phone. Yeah, that makes sense. I haven't, I, you know, I've rarely seen <laughs> Wi-Fi signs. That should be very um, straight up, yeah, you know. We offer Wi-Fi in exchange. We're going to track you. Real simple. Mm -hmm. And the purpose of it is not, you know, to do anything other than to better serve you. But it has to be stated in, in, in a very short section. Great. Well, I, I've really enjoyed um, our discussions today, and I'm, I'm really happy to have you on the show. So thank you for joining. It's been my pleasure. Hopefully this was useful for you and your, and your listeners, and I'd love to do it again sometime. Great. Thank you, Paula. You've been listening to Rethink Retail. For all the latest news on commerce and trends, join the discussion, rethink.industries.com.